0: as we begin our fifth podcast at this point sass wants you to be convinced that this isn't just harumph and uh, this generation is terrible or get off my lawn he wants you to understand that there are specific um, uh, measurable investigatable unique issues that can be addressed in the last two thirds and he makes this transition into part two an active program we've seen collectively blind to the irony that the generation coming of age has begun life with far too few problems. No one should regard the eradication of polio as anything but a glorious blessing, but we should also be able to recall that many older folks we know grew their character by fighting through their polio, and many of their generation who didn't contract the paralyzing infection learned to count their blessings because of what they didn't have to fight through. We're not shepherding very well on this score, and thus our offspring know neither the experience of work nor even their ignorance of the hidden work that keeps their grocery aisles overflowing and geopolitical tormentors at bay. There is simultaneously a great blessing and a real curse in living in an exceptionally prosperous unique nation. Five, character building habits. Though we rarely admit it in polite company, I suspect most thoughtful parents know that we have placed excessive faith in our school's ability to remake our kids for us and to solve almost every serious social problem. A misplaced hope about what schools can and cannot accomplish has led us to reoccurring cycles of disappointment, disagreement, and public disengagement. And I would just add, the same sort of thing goes for churches, especially amongst uh, expectations on youth pastors. Get the young contemplating death, age, and eternity by working strenuously against age segregation. This is one of SAS's first suggestions as to addressing this, first with your own kids and then any other kids over which you have influence. If your experience is limited to spending time with only people roughly your own age, then your understanding of life and joy and pain and suffering and death will be severely attenuated. Second, develop a work ethic. Work hard. Do manual. Engage in manual labor. Work outdoors on a farm, say, or on a ranch. This is an education in and of itself. The goal is to learn the habits that lead to the discovery of meaningful work. Your aim is to become free to work with delight rather than seeking to be free from work all the time. Third, Embrace limited consumption. Luxury is the bane of politics. At some point, we forget the difference between needs and wants and decided that acquiring things could bring us lasting happiness. It's not true. Gluttony and greed are dangers we've forgotten to guard against. But even more basically, consumption alone can never make us happy. Meaningful production can and does. Knowing how our species overcame subsistence and necessity, and why the United States developed from a small agrarian republic into a commercial powerhouse is an asset in recovering an older understanding of how to limit your desires and how to find satisfaction and gratitude in the meeting of a limited set of true needs. Fourth, and I believe the weakest of Sass's suggestions here, learn how to travel and travel light. Of course contrast clarifies, but Sass says to understand the difference between need and want, you need to know what it's like to subsist or live in a different context. To understand your own culture better, it's essential to experience other cultures so that you can look back at yours. Literature is a key way to gain that perspective and one of the cheapest, but the best way to shock open young eyes is to travel. Fifth, learn how to read and decide what to read. Just as you learn to appreciate the necessity and your own culture better by experiencing the cultures of other places, books offer a kind of literary travel. You can visit ancient Athens and Jerusalem and Brooks. But there's a difference between learning how to read and how to read well. Your kids need to become obsessed with the habit of reading. They need an appetite. And then they need a list of great literature and great nonfiction. The best way to develop that appetite is for them to start playing an active role in building and explaining and defending their menu of chosen books or ideas that they mull over or try to ingest or integrate so they can fall in love with and return again to some of their entrees. Bodybuilding for the mind and soul, the scar tissue of character, happily awaits. Okay, so the remainder of the book is a defense of these five general suggestions about effective parenting in the 21st century. So let's start with suggestion number one. Flee age segregation. Flee age segregation. Or get the young contemplating death, age, and eternity. So here's the first quote by Cicero. Cicero. It's not by strength or speed or swiftness of body that great deeds are done, but by wisdom, character, and sober judgment. These qualities grow richer as time passes." If 17th century settlers from Puritan, Massachusetts or Anglican, Virginia were transported to the present day, they would be obviously confused. The lights, the sounds, and all the technology. Our vast market system, which overtook the subsistence agricultural economy of their time, would baffle and impress them, our overflowing grocery shelves. They would probably not believe their eyes upon seeing the endless supply of food in our supermarkets and the infinite product list on Amazon. But once our time travelers got past the shock of material plenty, I suspect they'd be even more disoriented and distressed by two changes in how we organize our social lives, the way we separate work from home, and then consequently the way we segregate the young from the old in our communities. First, work has become tremendously specialized and thus increasingly centered, at least prior to the new revolution in mobile digital devices in factories, offices, and other specialized workplaces. Think about this. 300 years ago, nobody commuted to work. People worked where they lived, downstairs, upstairs, or just outside the house or tent. Everybody in the family was engaged in activities for the betterment of the family and possibly the village. Hunting, farming, fetching water, gathering firewood, barrel making, butter churning, etc., etc. Separating work from the home, taking the artisan out of his shop and putting him in a steel mill, for example, was a stark shift in not just economic but also social and family life. Other cultures, even high, highly hierarchical ones, have not segregated young and old this rigidly, and our marketers and advertisers now aim to increase that segregation. Just as mom-and-pop stores, quote-unquote, and neighborhood supermarkets evolved into big-box anchor stores with demographically targeted specialty shops arrayed around them, mall-like churches now offer services and programming tailored to the market segments inside their congregations. High schoolers, college kids, Gen Xers, baby boomers, and even holdover liturgical traditionals, quote-unquote, Perhaps only chains like Starbucks transcend intergenerational divides, says Sass, anchoring the corner curb of the strip mall and the lobby of the megachurch. Worship services are differentiated primarily by musical style and volume. The younger the crowd, the louder the amplifiers. But the costs go beyond possible hearing loss, as studies show that generational segregation weakens faith commitments. According to the Fuller Youth Institute, quote, "...involvement in all church intergenerational worship during high school is more consistently linked with mature faith in both high school and in college than in any other form of church participation. Fewer and fewer of our young people have intergenerational experiences in the pews, with both theological and sociological consequences." As community density weakens, context for sharing wisdom also sadly evaporate. This is very interesting at this time where we have a biological and legal mandate to generationally segregate. And one of the things that was most encouraging about uh, my Sunday school deployment at this point in my life was that we were able to uh, integrate many, many different generations of, of people across our church and our Sunday school deployment. Death as a central fact in life, force a focus on the eternities in young people. We have, to our detriment, created a cult of denial about our own mortality. So much to be said here, both in the Bible, in the Word, and in life. Life needs to be lived and prioritized with the understanding that it is limited. I'm going to repeat that. Life needs to be lived and prioritized with the understanding that it is limited. An awareness of one's mortality makes life richer because the importance can be emphasized and the trivial can be marginalized. What is a child's typical first experience of death today, excluding TV or movies? Maybe the loss of a pet or a much older relative. For a young child, the death of a frail great-grandparent hardly seems real or impactful. They are just so different, which makes relating to them very difficult. Children in the old days were constantly reminded, as if their lived experience wasn't harsh enough, that time was not on their side. Our downplaying of death to the point of its disappearance from consciousness is not a healthy development. In our age-segregated era, we spend enormous energy, time, and money letting the young and middle-aged pretend eternal youth is attainable rather than actually grappling with the inevitable and rather than comforting those actually declining. Aeschylus has a chorus in Agamemnon to announce to us that, quote, he who learns must suffer, and that against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of enduring pain. There's a discussion of life generation, three purposes of sex that need to be returned to, unitive, procreative, and pleasurable— Then all the data on the wisdom of hemming in the desire to marital monogamy is not likely to be formulated or expressed in a peer-to-peer culture. Having young people exposed to an actual birth again forces the eternities into the fore. The bookends, death and life, birth and death, they're overwhelming realities and they need to be brought in front of young people. They overwhelm us with joy and grief. They involve us in something greater than ourselves, greater than we can fully comprehend, forgiving life and seeing it extinguished, enliven our highest hopes and reveal our deepest fears. Almost incomprehensibly, we get to participate in creating life, but its pace and length still remain entirely beyond our control.